Welcome to the Cultivating Business Growth Podcast, bringing you bi-weekly discussions designed to help you grow your business and create the lifestyle you desire. Elevate your business with proven strategies from virtual CFOs, CPAs, and business advisors. We discuss real-world challenges solved with actionable steps that get you the results you need both in business and building the life you deserve. Thank you for joining us for episode number 113 of the Cultivating Business Growth Podcast, brought to you by PJS and Co-CPAs. I'm your host, Megan Spicer, and today we have a very interesting guest for you. I am excited to welcome a Welsh management consultant and researcher in the field of knowledge management and the application of complexity science. His work is international in nature and covers government and industry, looking at complex issues relating to strategy and organizational decision-making. He has pioneered a science-based approach that I've spent a few hours listening to. It's very interesting. This applies to organizations drawing on anthropology, neuroscience, and complex adaptive systems theory. Welcome to the show, Dave Snowden. Pleasure to be with you. We're very happy to have you. Like I said, spent a couple hours prepping and listening to you on various podcasts. And I think just overall, the theme that I've gathered from how you operate and how you help businesses is really, and I've experienced this as well in the organizations that I've worked, there's either no systems or processes at all, right? Or when we start to put processes in place, there's a tendency to oversimplify things. And I really enjoy that about your approach that there's not a one size fits all. And I'm excited to talk to you about and get into this topic with you because it's not just a, oh, wave the magic wand and here's your solution. You know, it's very simple. Yeah, we we make a distinction between a chef and a recipe book user. (laughs) And the trouble is most consultancy is just recipes, recipes from your grandmother's cookbook, which don't take account modern cookery techniques anyway. Right. Where the chef understands the ingredients and understands the principles of cooking. And I think it's that mixture of theory and practice, which the chef has, that we're trying to bring into play. That's a great analogy. And there's another one I'm going to throw at you that I didn't expect to come out of your mouth mm-hmm. when I was listening to one. But I'll save it for later. It's a little nugget that I'll save okay. for later. <laughs> but um, first, I want to have you define, because in one of them, you defined the term sense-making. And I think that's an important definition to go into this conversation with. Okay. So there are five schools of sense-making. I can give you a link and, yeah, that's academically verified. The one I belong in uses a hyphen and whether you have a hyphen or not actually matters. If you have it as a single word, it's a noun. With a hyphen, it's a verb. And I define sense-making as how do you make sense of the world so that you can act in it. And with that comes a concept of sufficiency. You never know everything you would like to know, but what sort of decisions can you make on the basis of what you know in what context? And then we call it naturalizing sense-making. So that means we bring natural science to bear. So we start, you know, I don't buy social science, I'm afraid. I've got a physics background and no social scientist ever has enough data to perform any valid conclusions whatsoever. But what we do is we take cognitive science, we take complexity science, we take some of the humanities and we say, what do we know about human decision making? Well, let's build methods and tools consistent with that knowledge. And that's kind of like the approach we adopt. 
Yeah. And I, I like how you bring a sense of structure to that complexity because just listening to you talk sometimes it's, it's very overwhelming because it opens all of these doors for, Oh, well, if I go down this pathway, (laughs) simplicity, it's just different. Right. Right. But it gives some structure so that you can, your brain, you know, our human brains who have (laughs) struggle sometimes to wrap our brains around this, but can start to understand and start to put some meaning to the complexity, I guess. I mean, to give two illustrations. So one one of the ones I always quote for people Mm -hmm. is if you give radiologists a group of x-rays, and ask them to look for anomalies. And on the final x-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. 83% of radiologists will not see it, even though their eyes scan it. Now, we know all the reasons for that in evolutionary terms, body, brain, all that sort of stuff. So trying to make people make rational decisions is a waste of time. So what we do is we find the 17%. So we build methods and tools consistent with that. And I think that's kind of like one one feature of this. The other is the whole principle about complexity is complexity deals with systems which are so entangled. That's the original Greek meaning of the word. You know, complicated is Latin. It's folded, so you can fold and unfold. Nothing changes. Okay. When something's entangled, you can't untangle it. it it's constantly changing. It's constantly fluid. Now, the reality is we all know how to do that because that's how we manage our children and our friends. We naturally work in complexity. We just forget it when we walk through the door of the office every day. That's an interesting point. It's a very good one. And before I forget too, I will put the link to that gorilla study in this because I heard you talk about that on another one. And I had to go look at the image because I was like, there's no way, you know, radiologists, they're smart people. variation in which they get six kids in three in white shirts, three in black shirts to pass two basketballs. And you're asked to count the number of times they pass the ball. And in the middle of the video, a woman walks in in a gorilla suit, beats her chest and walks out. Most people don't see her. Because you do not see what you're not expecting to see. And that's the problem with innovation, novelty and everything else. Right. Yeah, it's like so bizarre that your brain doesn't even pick it up. It's not just the brain. It's also, I think that's another mistake in Western thinking. We we assume Mm. the brain makes all the decisions. And that's a very 17th century notion. The reality is the body actually makes 70% plus of your decisions for you without you thinking about it. Oh, wow. The brain fires after the event just to check if it got it right this time. And a huge amount of our cognitive function is held in the narratives of the groups we live in. It's what Andy Clark calls scaffolding. It's why America is a very different culture from Europe. Right. Now, if you look at the political range in America from a European point of view, you're all conservatives. There's nobody remotely left-wing or even liberal. I mean, how the hell do you understand that? I don't know. No idea, right? right. Um, and it's not that we have different genetic backgrounds because we're the mm-hmm. same, but it's mm-hmm. the cultural entrainment of the narratives in the society you grew up, which act as an additional filtering device. But overall, wow. it improves efficiency because it's like Klein and I both say, There's no such thing as a cognitive bias. Mm. Basically, all of those things evolve because at a species level, they have utility. They reduce the energy cost of decision making. You can find isolated cases where they don't work, but most of the time there will not be a gorilla in the x-ray picture. Right. Yeah, that does make sense. It's just 
it's so bizarre to think about it. And like I said, my mind keeps blowing every time I listen to, to certain things and certain points that you have because there's so much information. One of the tools that I think is very useful for business owners in wrapping your head around this is, and it's a Welsh word, so I may butcher it. So please correct me if I don't get this right. It's cannavin. That's close. It's cannavin. Cannavin is the way you pronounce it. There you go. (laughs) But I have a screenshot here. And with your permission, of course, I'd like to include this in the show notes Mm -hmm. for this episode. This image is very helpful in kind of understanding how they're connected. Um, But I'd like you to kind of give us an overview of what that means, what this framework is. Okay, so fundamentally in nature, there are three types of system. Uh, Ordered systems, complex systems, and chaotic systems. I'll ignore plasma for the moment, right? So an ordered system has such a high level of constraint that everything is predictable. A complex system, as I said, is entangled. So the only thing you know with any uncertainty is that whatever you do will have unintended consequences. And that actually has implications because that's opportunity and threat. And a chaotic system is one in which there are no effective constraints, so it's de facto random. Now, a useful metaphor for that is to think about solid, liquid, and gas. So if I've got a solid object, it's fairly predictable. It's not difficult to manage. Liquid, which is complex, you have to contain it, but it's more fluid. And of course, gas is all over the place. Mm. And that allows me to bring in latent heat. So if you heat water up to 100 degrees, it doesn't immediately become steam. It requires you to put more heat in before it makes a phase shift. And it's like just before it snows, the air warms up because heat is being thrown out as the liquid Mm -hmm. becomes a solid. Mm -hmm. So in Kinevin, order, complex and chaos are three states which have an energy gradient involved in transferring between them. And then you've got the middle section, which is basically taking the metaphor forward. There's a point where pressure and temperature balance. So it is equiprobable whether something will become solid, liquid, or gas. It could go in any direction. Mm. And in Kinevin, that's called the aporetic domain. Now, aporia is a Greek word. It means a question that you can't answer without thinking differently about the problem. In fact, Greek children in school will say things like, I'm having an aporetic moment. Oh, wow. Really important concept, all right? Yeah. And then, so that's the basic Kinevin. And then order divides into two clear and complicated so clear is like in the states you drive on the right in the uk we drive on the left everybody knows what you do you follow the rules everybody does it complicated is where only experts know what to do and to give you a driving example for complex if you ever drive in italy south of naples don't follow the rules it doesn't work I've tried to drive the Orfini coast. It's a bloody nightmare. Ouch. And then some colleagues of mine in Milan University said, you haven't realized they flock. So Italian drivers, it's follow the next car, match speed, avoid collision. Oh, wow. And if you follow those three rules, it's actually stress-free driving in southern Italy. And that's how birds flock. Yeah, so that's a good example oh. of a complex system. It's, it's very simple heuristics. Uh, another right. example, point. this is a good Sunday school exercise, by the way is you get a group of 20 or 30 people and you ask them to identify their best friend and their worst enemy in the group. Oh, boy. And before you do that, you say, it doesn't have to be real and don't say anything and don't look at anybody. 
Yeah? Mm -hmm. Then you ask them to organize so that their best friend is between them and their enemy. And the group dissipates all over the room. You then change the rule and say, protect your friend from the enemy. And the group clumps immediately in the middle of the room. Mm. And that's actually how antelope protect themselves from predator. They identify one other antelope and they protect that antelope from the predator as a result of which the herd holds together. Wow. Now, there are some fascinating things from nature that we can apply. And that's a nice little moral exercise as well, by the way. Yeah. And I like that because there's so much in business that is, you know, self-help, which is great and journaling and, you know, setting intentions. And I think there's value in all of that. I think what drew me to your approach so much was the relation directly to natural sciences and how there's hard evidence, I guess. The trouble is that there isn't a recipe for entrepreneurship. I mean, I've, I set up a small company 20 years ago, right? There isn't a recipe right. for it. If you look at failed startups everybody does exactly the same thing as successful startups it's my mm. problem with a book lean startup it just describes what successful people he interviewed did we did equivalent right. work with dorothy leonard at harvard when i was in ibm companies who failed do exactly the same things it's just you've got really? a market so there are so many players some of them are bound to succeed anyway and that's the problem with recipes people don't actually understand the scientific base of the recipe so they assume they've got a predictive model and you don't. Yeah. Right. I think that happens a lot with statistics, though. It's like medical statistics. It's started mm -hmm. to replace physiology. And that's really problematic because you need the physiology as well as the statistics. Right. Well, even us, you know, we use a statistic from SCORE. They help small businesses. And I think it's 82% of small businesses fail due to cash flow issues. So it's even making me question in my brain, right? And what I've read, I'm thinking, well, small businesses don't pay attention to or struggle more with these cash flow issues. So that's probably a big part of it. But all businesses struggle in the in the early days with cash flow, right? So to your point, well, you haven't got the volume coming through. So it's right. I mean, don't don't tell me, all right? I mean, right. I know that when I've got the scars all over my back from cash flow issues. Right. And it's right. a universal, right? Um, in terms of the way it works. And I think part of the issue is companies, they don't realize that they're living a, a journey lots of other people have lived. Mm. And you can't follow somebody else's journey. Everybody's journey is to some extent unique because of the context in which created. I mean, to be quite honest, as a small business, you're actually better off scientifically going with your instinct. Really? And the trouble with the scoring system, so... You know, we have a major problem then with credit scoring. Yeah. Mm. So I remember I used to go in and see my bank manager. He knew me. He knew my family. He used to phone me up and said, you need to transfer some money in. I've increased your overdraft for a week. Deal with it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I knew him from when he was a fifth former, when I caned him, when I was a school prefect. So he'd forgot, he'd forgiven me for that. All right. Right. Now, it's all an AI system, which is scoring you, um, so fitting you in the mean. So we've lost human judgment. Right. Now, what's fascinating is small companies maintain human judgment. When they become big companies, they forget about it, which is one of the issues with scaling. So recognizing the value of human decision-making. And human beings, just to use a logic on this, we think abductively, not inductively. So just to give you the logic, right? So deduction is if A, then B. 
Right. Induction is all the cases of A have B, so we can assume some association. Mm. Abduction, this is the great contribution of American philosophy to the logic, by the way, the pragmatists, is what's the most plausible connection between apparently unconnected things? Now, human beings are really good at that. We make completely unexpected connections between things mm. on a dime. Right. The good news is it makes us hugely innovative. And by the way, it comes from art, the role of art in human evolution is what triggers that. Um, but, you know, so we make decisions on the dime. We're, we're very, very intuitive. The downside is it makes us prone to conspiracy theories. Now, if you're a small company, you need to be abductive, not inductive, because you're changing the space. You're changing the market to conform with what you can sell rather than mm -hmm. responding to market demand. And a lot of people don't get that and they don't make the transition between being a small company and a medium company. Mm. And that, that often goes wrong. Yeah. So in the beginning, you need to pay more attention to serving the market. I mean, there's a wonderful book called More by Jeffrey Moore called Crossing the Chasm, which I recommend to people. Okay. And I built another framework called Flexure's Curse, which builds on that. Okay. So what actually happens is you come in, you, two and a half percent of the market will always buy something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are the guys who'll queue outside the Apple store for 12 hours when if they just waited 24 hours, they could buy it anyway. All right. Right. And you don't want to sell to those guys. They're a right bloody pain because actually they know better than you do what what your product should be. And so they're constantly mm -hmm. arguing with you about it and they waste a huge amount of time. Mm -hmm. What then happens is you get this chasm in which nobody buys for a bit before you hit what's called the early majority, which is about 13.5% of the market. Mm -hmm. And they buy what it will do for them, not how it does it. Right. This is the big thing that small companies get wrong. They spend all their time telling people how they do it because that's what right. early adopters want. Mm -hmm. They don't recognize when the market's flipped. And now people know you can do it. They want to know what it will do for them. Right. And if you okay. can dominate that 13.5%, you control the market thereafter. And this lack of awareness of that life cycle stuff actually kills a lot of small companies. Interesting. So what are some successful things that you've seen companies do that help make that transition or help check in to make sure that they're doing the right things at the right stage? We did a whole training courses on this in a company called Data Sciences before IBM took us over. You know? mm -hmm. I think... There is that key flip. So there's a point, one of the things, let's give you a successful example. One of the things I decided when I was strategy director is we couldn't afford to sell to the 2.5% early adopters. The margins were far too low. It took too long to bring stuff in. Everything went wrong. Okay. So we decided we had to sell, quote unquote, on the other side of the chasm. Now, this is a real example. So we were the best in the world at that time in object-oriented programming and rapid application development. We were really good at it. Mm -hmm. But nobody was buying that because it was all about the year 2000. Oh, okay. So all the budgets were for legacy system management. And I got rid right. of Java. I got rid of Cobra and Fortran from my CV because I didn't want anybody to know I could program in those. Yeah. So what we did is I did a deal with a French company who were the market leader in Europe in legacy management. We took their method across. They method Francais, which always goes down well in the UK anyway. Uh, but then we differentiated it with our rapid application development and object orientation. So that was an insignificant part of the whole, but it made our traditional offer look very different. Hmm. And within two years, 
our capability was now the dominant sale over the legacy management. Oh, wow. So what we did is we put something completely new onto something familiar that people knew they wanted. Right. As they got engaged with it, they got excited and they changed. And that's called symbiotic marketing. And once you start to understand the theory of this, it's much easier to handle those sort of changes. Yeah, that's interesting. And again, playing into the complexity of issues. It's not just that the product wasn't good. You know, some people are so quick to judge things and just say, oh, it just didn't work. You know, we've spent 15 years creating a market for complexity and we've had to be very patient. Two things triggered it. One was COVID made people aware of complexity. Mm. And secondly, the European Union commissioned me to write a handbook on how to manage in complexity. So that gave government credibility. Yeah, oh, you know, EU field guide, which is free and available. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things we now have to do is we have to stop doing projects and we have to create products. Hmm. All right. And that's a difficult transition. We're still getting people to go through it. Right. But we tried to do it three years ago. It had been too early. If we wait another year, it will be too late. Right. So, again, this is why you really need to have the theory in order to do the practice. Because if you've got the theory, you can handle novelty in the situation. If you haven't got the theory, you're just going to repeat what you did last time or what other people you know did. And that's a very haphazard pathway. Yeah. And I want to go back to the context, too, because I don't want to drop that. Because there was another line that I heard you say previously, there isn't a single context-free way of making decisions. Well, all the big consultancies, I mean, every two or three years, they have a new way of doing things. Right, right. One of the things which drove me to create Kinevin is I just had enough of McKinsey's and the like, all right, with like, there was nothing wrong with business process re-engineering. It worked really well in manufacturing, but it's crap in services. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just accept it work there and do something different in services? Right. But, oh, no, you've got to throw it out and start everything again. And that that fad cycle is really dangerous. Yeah, I agree. And <laughs> before I forget, I just got to this point in my notes. <laughs> I have to. It's going to kind of throw throw us on a left curve here. But the other analogy, the little nugget that I said I was saving was your Frozen 2 analogy, because I was not expecting you to reference a Frozen movie. It's one that's very popular in my household. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great complexity movie. Yeah. And I I think it's one of those movies, I think they made enough money on Frozen 1 that they could get really good script writers on Frozen 2 who played games with adults. There's a moment in the middle of it where... um, the real heroine of the Frozen series is the young sister without the magic, not the older sister. Yeah? Mm-hmm. She's lost. She thinks her sister is dead. She's lost her mentor, the snowman. She thinks everything is over. And she sings this beautiful song, which has subsequently been made famous by some Ukrainian refugees, which is all I can do is do the next right thing. Now, in complexity science, if I go back to Stu Kaufman, that's called the adjacent possible. Hmm. So in complexity, you can't know what the future is. One of the key things we say about complexity is you start journeys with a sense of direction. You mustn't have goals because then you're open to novelty on the pathway. What you need to do is where am I? Where can I go next? Go there and look again. And actually to go to several places in parallel because you don't know what's going to work. Mm. And that, that concept of starting journeys with a sense of direction 
not achieving goals is a key complexity principle. Yeah. And this spoke to me a lot because I've always been a very goal oriented person. So hearing you say that you should have a general sense of direction versus goals and the why behind it, because I get very tunnel vision when I have mm. a goal, right? I don't open myself up to other That's possibilities it. because this is the goal that I'm going to get it. You get perverse incentives, you get you get entrained behavior, you get a lack mm-hmm. of reception to novelty. Yeah. So I, I just think that there's so many good ideas to take away from you and your teachings. And I know I'm going to continue listening and reading, and I will go ahead and link to all of the resources that I found. Um, is there anywhere that somebody a business owner could go to get more information? Is there somewhere that you suggest as a starting place? There's EU field guide, which is worth reading, right? That's got most of the stuff in it. And you can download that for free or get a copy sent to you if you pay for postage. Okay. There's our website. I mean, most of my stuff is on the blog mm-hmm. and the blogging is my medium, right? Okay. I've just finished a, a Christmas series. Yeah. Oh, nice. So if you search on keywords on there, you'll find it. And also there's kinevin.io. So that's our open source wiki. So all of our methods are in open source. Anybody can use them. Mm. See, that's what I love about it too. It's just, it's open source. You're really about improving and helping people achieve more and and learn. And I, I love that. So again, just thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with if there's one thing that you think would be helpful? Follow your passion, I think, is the word. If you believe in something, you can make it happen. I love that. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. I know it's late over there, so I'll let you go, but I hope to have you back on in the future again. It was a pleasure. Thank you, too. Thanks for joining us. Keep that momentum going and we will see you next time. This has been another episode of the Cultivating Business Growth Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe, rate, and review. Gain access to additional free resources and learning opportunities by visiting pjscpas.com forward slash podcast.